You're listening to a special series of expert voices. In each episode, Riviera Maritime Media and Lloyd's Register bring together subject matter experts to share their insights on the technical, operational, and commercial issues shaping the marine and offshore industries. Our host is Riviera Maritime Media's Edwin Lampert. Today's podcast is themed around the investment risks of decarbonisation and will also address how the Silk Alliance helps ship owners overcome financial uncertainties when transitioning their fleets. I'm joined today by Lloyd's Register Maritime Decarbonisation Hub's decarbonisation consultant, Shane Bellani. I'm joined by Pacific International Line's General Manager Fleet, Go Chung Hun, more commonly known as CH. And I'm also joined by Jens van Ipezela, Director, Sector Coverage, Transport and Logistics, ING Bank. My name is Edwin Lampert, and I'm Riviera Maritime Media's Executive Editor and Head of Business Relations. So coming to Jens in the first instance, our banker, it's quite a quandary for you, is it not, this uh, decarbonisation transition? Your role as a bank is simultaneously to identify business opportunities and at the same time balance investment risk. And of course, banks are typically conservative, the regulatory regime supports caution. How are you gearing up and how are you challenged by today's maritime decarbonisation transition? Sure, and thanks, uh, thanks, Edwin. I think the main, the main, I would say, challenge we face is probably that historically we have been very client-led in that we look to ship owners to take decisions on, on vessel types and fuels. And we try to understand those and we support those. We are not necessarily in the driver's seat, but just, you know, just behind, I would say. Of course, uh, as the years have progressed, there is tremendous pressure on banks to, to showcase that they are helping uh, move the world to a more sustainable place. And specifically for banks, there's been a lot of pressure to show that the portfolios of ships that we finance are increasingly contributing to a decarbonization of the sector. And of course, we've made certain commitments on that. For example, ING is a founder and signatory of the Poseidon principles, but that is a good ambition to have. Then of course, we need to put it into into practice. I think the real issue that we are trying to address uh, by being part of the Silk Alliance, but also in general, is to figure out which assets do we finance going forward. I would venture to say that's been less challenging uh, probably historically as there was more of a consensus around ships and propulsion technology and maybe not enough change, you could argue, but at least it was stable. With banks, typical caution, as you rightly pointed out, we now have to think about, well, if you know propulsion systems and, and fuels change quite rapidly and there is a variety of ships out there, who do we back? Um, I mean, colloquially, I could say, which we're trying to pick a winner, but I think probably, again, being a bank and cautious, we would try to avoid financing stranded assets, i.e. ships that don't make sense anymore for the economy or the decarbonization targets that everyone is trying to achieve collectively. So that is, I would say, the main main thing we are trying to get our head around at this uh, this point in time. Thank you. Certainly, CH, there must be a lot in that answer that you relate to. After all, for zero shipping to be successful from a, from anyone's perspective, but especially from an owner's perspective, it, it must be cost competitive. And I think one of the things you need to reconcile is the total cost of ownership and what might be called the total cost of ownership gap. And I know that this is 
very much at the forefront of your, your present agenda. You've got eight dual-fueled vessels on order due for delivery 2025. I know that you have some feeder vessels which are averaging 20 years, which you're looking at renewing. How are you reconciling the challenge of implementing green shipping and the total cost of ownership gap between the lifetime of a zero emission vessel compared to previous generation shipping vessels? Yes, it, indeed, it is, uh, it is a conundrum that uh, ship owners and uh, ship operators are facing uh, at this point in time. Uh, traditionally, uh, when we look at a fleet renewal uh, or when we order new ships, we look at the market, we look at the capacity that is required, the ship type and the technologies that are out there. But today, in today's world, we have to consider the type of propulsion as well because uh, we have to consider the regulations that are already in place that uh, will drive shipping towards uh, decarbonization. Uh, in terms of BIL, uh, you know, as you mentioned, we, we have our existing fleet of ships. Uh, some of them are not that young. Uh, we have to consider the renewal of these ships. And some of the ships are a little bit younger. And we also have to consider what we can do with them for them to last the distance in order to comply with the decarbonization regulations. Now, coming back to the new builds and the renewal of our ships that are uh, getting on in, with age, uh, even investing in uh, new ships uh, it, it is quite a challenge at this point in time for ship owners. There are various uh, alternative fuel uh, solutions. Uh, in PIL, we have gone for LNG dual fuel at this point in time because uh, that's how we see as the most pragmatic solution for now. We know for sure that uh, in two years, three years time, when the ships are delivered, we will be able to run those ships on LNG. There are supply infrastructure in place, but at the same time, we keep an eye out for other options as well, methanol, ammonia, and uh, even carbon capture. A lot of the consideration has to be given to the supply availability and the infrastructure to be in place before we can uh, be confident enough to place the investments. Shane, listening to both gentlemen's responses, that much used or indeed overused expression comes to mind of chicken and egg. Chicken and egg in terms of who should invest first in the new technology, should it be the ship owner, the fuel producer, some other entity? My question to you is, does the Silk Alliance resolve this conundrum once and for all? I think you're totally right. It's a classic chicken and egg conundrum. Uh, the ship owners, as Chang'un says, have so many options available to them, various different fuels, all at different stages of readiness. It's very hard to choose the right one and the one that will remain competitive for 20, 25 years. But similarly, when we take that information to the fuel producers of the world, although they can perhaps produce the compliant fuels, they're unsure of the amount of demand that's available, locations where that fuel will need to be supplied, and so they're equally hesitant to invest. The, the Silk Alliance as a cross-industry collaboration to develop a green corridor is an attempt to bring those two sides of the equation together. We'll be working with the fuel producers, but we'll also be using a model we've developed to try and understand how the potential fuel demand and supply can evolve over time, considering all those various different options, and then help us to select the best strategy to move forward with. So you mentioned, Shane, selecting the right strategy in the preparatory work you're doing. How might delaying investment impact the maritime industry's decarbonisation journey and give an upper hand to other sectors competing for the same new energy sources? 
Well, exactly, Edwin. I think there's a finite amount of green electricity and green energy available in the world, and there's growing demand coming from other sectors. With biofuels as well, we've seen shipping have some small forays into it and some trials, but we know that demand and that fuel is going to be allocated to other sectors like aviation in the future. So it's unlikely we're going to be able to afford that fuel or use it. Similarly, with green electricity and green electricity derived products, we need to be clear on what strategy we want to use and how long we can employ that strategy to be able to secure that supply. Right now, for the fuel producers, they're still looking to invest in the production facilities. So being able to go to them with a clear demand, a 20, 30 year plan, as well as being able to fund and procure that fuel is a very tempting offer for them to then construct that infrastructure. Perhaps we could focus a little more on how involvement in the Silk Alliance for the first movers, of which we clearly have uh, two round the table with us today, assist in outweighing the risks and costs associated with this maritime transition. Shane, again, perhaps if you get the ball rolling, but I'd like to hear from the other two gentlemen as well. So there are, there's a number of risks. Uh, when we choose to invest as a, uh, an individual, we may be trying to hedge our bets between different fuels to make sure that we have longevity in those ships and ensure they still remain competitive, but also not missing out on the most competitive options and making sure we can compete with the different segments of the industry. When we come together as a group, however, we can actually make a better choice as a whole by ensuring that if we commit to a shared strategy, and in the fleet of the Silk Alliance, we're talking of nearly 400 vessels, if we're able to commit a large demand factor like that towards a shared strategy, we can ensure that we have the required demand to, meet, to make that fuel available for the next 20 or 30 years. Jens, do come in. For us, uh, the primary goal of joining the Silk Alliance was really educating ourselves. I mean, there is only so much we are going to get out of out of research, uh, and it cannot rival the kind of uh, discussions between the group of stakeholders that, that has been brought together here in in a live context. And yeah, that is that is what's been happening, and that has been very interesting for us to to see happen. And again, this comes back to what I said earlier that, you know, banks are going to have to take a more active role in figuring out which ship owners and which assets to support, which historically we've had to do a lot less of. And with that comes, I think, the need to be a lot more informed about what some of these things mean. I think the Silk Alliance goes a step further than just it's not a research project. Obviously, it is trying, as, as Shane rightly pointed out, to send a demand signal to, to hopefully set a few things in motion or at the very least get people thinking. And yeah, of course, if we can make a small contribution to that by offering our perspective as a as a bank or as a financier of ships, then we're very happy to do so. And uh, that's been the goal for us, Edwin, basically. Thank you. Uh, CH, do come in. From our point of view, uh, this decarbonization journey involves a lot of stakeholders. For example, PIL as, as a single ship owner will not be able to move the needle. Uh, the decarbonization journey involves our financiers, classification societies, shipyards, even port authorities, you know, and of course the energy supplier as well, uh, and more than one ship owner. Uh, to be honest, uh, I mean a few ships. Uh, if PIL is uh, to invest in in uh, say ten feeder vessels, it will not generate enough demand for the supply of uh, fuel X. Let's call the solution to be fuel X. Uh, to be to be available in Singapore, so it, there, there's uh, all these stakeholders have to come together, like in the Sail Alliance, 
and uh, you know we we discuss, we come up with a strategy and develop a green corridor. Then it becomes something that is uh, actually possible to generate enough demand, enough support uh, from from ship owners, from financiers, from class, from shipyard, and uh, from the port authorities to and the government as well to to come up with the buckering infrastructure. And that's what we hope to see. And when a, a green corridor is developed, it becomes a feasible reality. It becomes something that may be scalable. So, uh, you know, straight away to, to drive global shipping, international shipping towards one particular uh, solution is difficult. But uh, to start off at a manageable scale, a green corridor says that from Singapore as the central port, uh, something that the Sail Alliance is looking at. Uh, I think that that is something that is possible. Yeah, and if, if I could add, I mean, for, for us, I think also continuing on the theme of education, but as part of that discussion, we're also exposed to stakeholders we wouldn't ordinarily interact with. I think for you, CH, that's maybe a bit different. I mean, some of the people around the table as a ship owner, you would conventionally see. To be fair, as a bank, we mainly deal with the ship owner, uh, in this case yourself, but we have less exposure to others. So for us, that is also massively educational. And I think that goes for some of the other stakeholders here as well, who might not interact with me or certain other people, you know, commonly. And that goes to, to the value of the Silk Alliance, I think. Gentlemen, you talk about stakeholders. Jens, you said this is not a research project, but what exactly is it? Is it fair, Shane, to characterize the Silk Alliance as a, a light partnership with perhaps a memorandum of understanding? It's, there's a shared vision of goals. Is, is that the kind of level it's operating on and how might it evolve in support of helping owners deal with the, the financial aspects of the maritime decarbonisation transition? And secondly, what exactly is being discussed within the alliance? Are you getting into the nitty gritty of whether fuel can be subsidised, feed-in tariffs, carbon pricing, contracts for differences? What is it and what are you discussing? Yeah, so maybe I can start. So. We actually spent a, a very long time constructing the group of the Alliance and we, we did that to ensure that everybody had a relatively similar vision of what needed to be happening. So of course we know decarbonisation is coming and we know that the, possibly the IMO targets aren't quite in line with what we expect them to be in the next 10 or 20 years. As a group we're, we're quite comfortable with that let's say, but we still know there's a lot of gaps that need to be addressed and that's why we brought them together in the Silk Alliance to try and address that collectively. In terms of what we actually do, we've got quite a uh, compressed work program to go through the theoretical stages of modeling the nitty gritty, as you say, Edwin, to look into the very specific fuel details and compatibilities of technologies, uh, as well as the different fuel production networks and locations around the world. But we ultimately hope that can guide decisions. And although the Silk Alliance isn't necessarily requiring uh, strict commitments on number of ships or particular targets in mind, we want to get to a position where all the ship owners and all the, the members of the Alliance can confidently invest in these decisions and enact this plan, knowing that they're not taking on an undue risk of stranded assets and fuel unavailability, but rather be confident that they are making steps towards decarbonisation and that that decision can last that 20, 30 years. And CH, to what extent do you expect the Alliance will address things like the potential to subsidise the fuel feed-in tariffs, carbon pricing? Yeah, I think um, the, the Alliance is a good platform to be able to get a sense of the amount of demand required and what type of uh, 
alternate field is the most ideal. And uh, when we have that answer in front of us, the, the, the demand uh, volume and uh, the type of uh, the, the selected alternative field, I think that makes things easier and clearer in terms of uh, uh, subsidies or, or even in terms of the government support or the port support to, to come up with the infrastructure. And uh, if I may add, uh, we also have bunker suppliers company in the alliance as well. And that also will provide them a clearer visibility of uh, the demand that they envisage to have and whether it makes it worth, worthwhile for them to bring in the fuel. Jens, you spoke about this having an educational dimension to it. Obviously, as a bank, you're acutely attuned to to risk. To what extent have you had to navigate antitrust issues? And how does how does the alliance deal with things like data sharing and, and bilateral cooperation between the parties? That's a good question, Edwin, and a fairly complex one at that. But yeah, I mean, obviously, any kind of industry work group that we get involved in, I think there's certain house rules that we agree to to avoid exactly the kind of anti-competitive behavior that you refer to and certainly that was discussed among the members before we joined and being you know a bank as we are otherwise we would not have been able to be part of that so i think Lloyd's register did a good job in sort of setting those rules clear that was the basis on which to that we could join this discussion basically um ultimately i mean it's in furtherance of a, of a common goal and as, as Shane, I think, pointed out, the, the goal is probably not to come away with sort of ironclad rules about what everyone will do. And this is how we're going to divide the market. Not at all. I mean, Shane, Shane, I'm not sure I could call it a thought experiment. That's probably not doing it enough justice because it's quite a bit more with all the, the modeling power and all the, the thinking you're putting behind it. But in a sense, it is a way to sort of let's put everyone in a room, let's lock the door and let's see with all of our different drivers and interests where, where we end up. I think there is tremendous value in that. It's it's a model approach, as, as CH rightly pointed out, to trying to solve a bigger problem. Clearly, there's a few green corridor discussions happening in parallel in different settings, different makeups, etc., which I think only adds value, frankly, because ultimately we're going to have to contrast and compare where we come out. I don't think we have the expectation that the Silk Alliance will solve this problem once and for all, but I think the more substantiated you can be about how you arrived at a certain conclusion, let alone what that conclusion is, the more you're going to invite other people to critique it and then have their own view on it. And and that's how we move forward, I think, on this. Shane, you've been mentioned by name, so obviously it's only fair to (laughs) to give you a a right of of response. Yeah, Yeah, maybe maybe just to add on to, as Chung-Hun and Jens rightly say, there's many other um, green corridors that are emerging in the world, and there's many different ways to try and address this uh, price difference, essentially, and cost of decarbonising. But there's also a potential advantage in being one of the first to do that. And a first mover group such as the Silk Alliance can actually capitalize on some of those, um, some of the potential available. For example, we're, we're working, unlike many of the other green corridors in Southeast Asia predominantly, and it's where we find most of the crew on board these vessels come from. And when we know we're talking about alternate fuels that don't really exist, we're also very closely connected to the training facilities and the potential to start upskilling the workforce in the region to provide those crews for, for those new type of vessels. So for us, although we hope the, the governments and the IMO can come together and fix a, a market-based measure or some carbon tax that solves all our problem, we're also looking to extract additional value from being a first mover and see if that puts us on a path to being competitive and probably even 
gaining ground in, in our industries? I think, you know, just like uh, BIL, many ship owners and ship operators today are doing a lot of guesswork on uh, what kind of ship to invest in, which direction to go in terms of decarbonizing their existing fleet and their future fleet. We, we, we can all lock ourselves inside a room within our company, uh, me and my colleagues, and uh, talk until, until the cow comes home and uh, still cannot have a clear picture. But uh, in a grouping like the Sip Alliance, where we have uh, different stakeholders coming together, there's a, there's a benefit uh, to, to a ship owner like PIL where uh, you know, we get to hear the views and uh, understand uh, from the financier point of view, from the classification society, from the port authorities, from the terminal operators, and from other ship owners as well. You know? And then we, we, through the discussion, through the, the various uh, exchanges, we have a better sense and a better idea where to put our money actually at the end of the day. No, it's a fair point. I mean, I think from a banking perspective, I think we're, we're on there, but also Asia Development Bank is a member as well, which is clearly not a commercial bank, but has a more um, yeah, more social motive in, in the investments that they make. So they are coming at some of these challenges from a different perspective, but ultimately with the, with the same goal. So already for me personally, echoing a bit what CH just said, seeing that perspective and contrasting it with our own is interesting because if they're if out of all of this, we could get more alignment and understanding of each other's position, that would already be a key takeaway. Um, and following on from that, I think as we think about which assets to finance and, and which to, to leave, I think it's also forcing us to have a think about the kind of discussions we have internally about how we should support some of these investment decisions. And I don't want to overpromise there. I think banks, banks will always be banks. But clearly, if there is a clearer path to a decision and what we should be doing, it follows that there should be a discussion among commercial banks active in this sector, but also development banks about let can we put our money where we think it should be put a bit more targeted. And, you know, so far due to healthy competition and all these things, which should be maintained, that has perhaps not always happened in such a focused way. This could be an occasion to have that discussion. And that also goes for having a discussion with certain banks regulators about you know, what we can do to support because, of course, banks are conservative by nature. And that is driven by their role in society and their regulators. But I think there are certain circumstances and definitely you know, the time we're all living in and the, the challenges we face would be a logical time to have another discussion on that about can we tweak our model a bit to yeah, help drive some of this transition that the Silk Alliance is uh, is trying to put its shoulders under. So that's that's definitely a driver for us. There are a couple of themes that came, come out of those responses I'd like to pick up on. We're obviously focusing on the first mover group. Who do we expect to be in the second wave? And within that, oh, can we expect, given that this is a silk alliance, uh, perhaps greater participation from Indian and Chinese interests into the mix? And the second thing I'd like to pick up on is, the point you just made actually about the tweaking of the models, the tweaking of the way we do things. How does the group expect the Silk Alliance to help tweak policy and regulation and general approach to reduce that cost gap that the industry currently has to bridge? Shane, perhaps you can get the ball rolling. Yeah, so maybe I'll pick up at least on the first part on, uh, on who we expect the second wave to be. Um, and that's interesting. So we've seen uh, a handful, five or 10 green corridors emerging around the world. 
uh, and they're all quite focused on specific shipping routes or sectors of, of the shipping industry. We're looking at Singapore Central uh, container vessels, basically, and they have the advantage of uh, fixed routes where we know that where they can or can't bunker, as well as getting that growing consumer pressure of the cargo they carry. So while we see that as an immediate start, we're also using Singapore specifically as a springboard for the wider the shipping industry. If we do have a situation where two or three or 400 vessels can bunker alternate fuels in Singapore, that's only a small step away from two or 3,000 entering the port every couple of days. And so we have that platform to provide um, visibility of potential solutions to the wider industry and enable them to also get on board with the kind of uh, strategies that we're developing. As for the uh, second part of the question on how we may tweak those models, perhaps I'll hand over to Jens to have a go or Chang'an. I think uh, if we can make something tangible uh, out of the SEAL Alliance, uh, for example, if we can identify a specific fuel that is feasible for the feeder container lines operating out from Singapore and establish a green corridor, uh, that might set an example and uh, make it scalable for other green corridors to be set up and further and further away from Singapore. And with that, uh, more and more, the market forces will come in in terms of uh, the fuel supplier and in terms of the demand, uh, in the, more and more ship owners will uh, join the fray. And uh, then it becomes more feasible for that particular fuel to be the solution going forward. It's just like LNG, it takes time, but today we can see that the majority, I, the last I, I read is that about 50% or more of the sh new shipbuilding orders in uh, this year are LNG dual fuel ships. So we have reached to that extent with regard to LNG. The thing is that uh, unfortunately LNG is still a fossil fuel, it won't take us all the way. But uh, the hope is that starting from the SEAL Alliance, if we can identify something tangible and then it will grow and it will be scalable and the solution that uh, we have Look, that will one day becomes to the scale of LNG and even more. I mean, yeah, I, I put the tweaking of business model on, on the table. I mean, again, cautious, I'm cautious not to overpromise, and I think banks' policies tend to tend to change at a you know quite a slow pace at times. But I think this is about time perspective. I mean, ultimately, everyone in the industry that makes an investment, whether it's a ship owner, it's a bank, or any of the other people involved, you want to know that value will be preserved and that you have a certain horizon and a return on, on your investment. And banks are no different in that sense. I think if you can create more certainty about what that pathway will be while meeting all the goals that you have uh, toward, and the, the commitments that you have towards society and sustainability, I think that, that is probably the common driver here, I would say, and also with banks, what we need to think about more as we think about business models and as you think about that time perspective perhaps in the shorter term you need to think about what do i need to do to incentivize that more so than i've done in the past and that's that's a bit of a departure so that's probably where the tweaking comes in but long term or even medium term the goal is still to invest in an asset that that holds its value over time and meets all of its other obligations and that's probably how we we try to uh, to solve that one Jens, you mentioned time perspective. I have to be conscious of time. So this is my last question for the, the three of you. How confident are you we will succeed in de-risking investments associated with decarbonizing and transitioning our fleets? What do you expect will be the biggest breakthrough we'll see in the next sort of five to 10 years? 
And what do you think we'll still be wrestling with in, say, five to 10 years? Uh, perhaps, Jens, you can get the ball rolling. In terms of what, what we what we see as the, the biggest driver, I mean, decarbonization is already there. And for us as a bank, you know, that is something we're not going to get away from. It's uh, only going to get stricter over time. I think everyone is very conscious of that. And depending a bit on where, where the IMO uh, discussion goes, I think there could be there could be a further shift in that, which could be could be fairly dramatic. I think we have to, to watch the space there. So I think that is a driver today and has the potential to be even more of a driver going going forward. I think my, my best hope for what we see emerge is lead some kind of industry consensus on what can be done, propulsion, fuel type of ships, and, and where we direct our investment in a, in a coordinated way. I think one of the, the things that shipping has historically wrestled with on every single level is that it is a fairly disparate industry at times with a lot of people involved, with a lot of different interests. I think we have to seize on this one to try to find common cause. I don't want to evangelize on it, and I won't, but I think that is really my hope, is that we find an investment case that we can all get behind that makes sense and, and does the right things. In terms of what we would still be, still be struggling with, I think, I mean, maybe picking up on the same theme is that there's a lot of different actors in shipping. I mean, just looking at ship owners, I mean, obviously CH works for one of the largest and the most well-known owners in the world. But there are different levels to this. There's very small owners of very small fleets, and there's very different types of ships that trade very specific routes. To get every single one of those people on board will be an ongoing challenge. I cannot imagine that being solved over the next 10 years. Of course, there is a question of materiality. I mean, you focus on the biggest gains first, the low-hanging fruit. And I think that is exactly why people like PIL is, are involved in, in this, and we're happy to see that. But I think you know it will be incumbent on all of us to make sure that no man is left behind and that eventually whatever innovation or solution is found does find its way down to, to as low a level as we can possibly manage and then yeah, keeps moving things in the right direction. Thank you. CH? I think uh, unless, unless uh, in the very near future, within the next one or two years, uh, some kids find the, the solution, find the holy grail, you know, find a find a zero carbon fuel that is safe, uh, easily available, that uh, you know, that is economically uh, uh, feasible, and that will solve all our uh, uh, assumptions and our, our decisions. There will always be an element of risk in terms of uh, picking the right decarbonization uh, solution for for ship owner when we make the investment, but I am fairly confident that uh, the SEAL Alliance, the initiative that we are embarking on now, will help in the risk assessment for a ship owner and all the other stakeholders in the Alliance as well, as to which direction to pick and uh, where we can uh, uh, move with more manageable risk. That's, uh, that's how I see it, because you know, the, the stakeholders involved in this Alliance will give each of the participants a view of what the other parties think, what is acceptable, what is the threshold volume that uh, you know, a bucket supplier will be willing to start uh, thinking about bringing in the fuel, what kind of demand will the port start thinking of building the supply infrastructure. So those kind of things will help very much in the risk uh, assessment and mitigation for, for an investment decision to be made. Yeah, I'm quite confident of that. Shame. Yeah, thanks. Maybe to add on to the, the great points said, 
I think uh, to, to share an optimistic tone, I think we have the best possible foundation that we could have to enable success. And that comes from, as Chen says, our visibility across the supply chain and the partners that we have involved in this. We know that if there's a weak point in any one of those partners' ability to enact the plan, that could likely lead to the failure of the whole plan and stranded assets and all the other risks that come across. So being sure to get those problems out on the table at this stage and to be clear of what they are and what they need to overcome those problems can allow us to be in that position to come up with a shared strategy that we uh, we can share the risk out equally and fairly across the supply chain to be able to invest in those solutions. In terms of the, the big breakthroughs that could be coming, I think, as, as Jens said, we hope for progress made at governmental levels and at the IMO to try and provide more clarity on the way forward. But this will, as always, be an ongoing discussion and problem and evolving in different ways. So as the industry, towards the governments and towards the regulators, we can be clear what solutions we think are possible uh, and possibly even preferred. What's clear is the starting gun has been sounded when it comes to de-risking decarbonisation and supporting owners in understanding and overcoming the financial uncertainties that arise when transitioning their fleets. I'd like to thank Shane, CH and Jens for their contributions today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast, part of a series brought to you by Riviera Maritime Media and Lloyd's Register. To share feedback on this episode and propose future topics, please email expert.voice at lr.org and edwin.lampert at rivieramm.com. To stay up to date on the technical and operational issues shaping the marine and offshore industries, please visit the Lloyd's Register and Riviera websites, www.lr.org and www.rivieramm.com.